Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host, Sean Cheatham. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And if you would like to subscribe to one of our tiers at Patreon and support us, uh, we would greatly appreciate that. Patreon.com forward slash a particular Baptist to receive exclusive benefits. Well, today we are going to be talking about a very important topic. And I have a I have a new setup here today. I got my laptop in front of me and the camera up here. So if you see me kind of going back and forth, that's why. Um, so just a little bit different today. But we're going to be talking about uh, the resurrection. Is the resurrection corporeal, meaning is it physical? Um, it's, a, it's a very important topic. This is, we believe, a gospel issue um, and something of, of utmost importance and not something that we can get wrong or deny or play around with because of its um, core importance to our faith. Um, but this is unfortunately something that is still debated today. Is the resurrection uh, corporeal or not? Um, so it, it's definitely something that should be discussed. But I think we'll start off with, we're going to do an extra exegetical discussion about it, and we're also going to do a historical discussion. So we'll start with kind of a historical discussion around the doctrine, and then we'll dive into the scriptures to talk about it exegetically. But we're arguing in the positive that this is, uh, that the resurrection is corporeal, and we believe that the scriptures teach this very clearly. So historically, um, if we look at our confession of faith, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, and I think... Uh, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the Westminster reads identical or almost identical to this. But this is the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 31, paragraph 2. Uh, and this is actually a chapter that deals specifically with the issue of the resurrection, among other things. But this paragraph says, At the last day, such of the saints as are found alive shall not sleep, but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies, and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. So you can see kind of a, a very basic overview of Genesis 15 um, and other places in Scripture where it talks about our bodies being raised, our physical bodies being raised, although they will be changed with their souls being united uh, to their bodies. Um, so we're seeing you know, seeing these doctrines already being laid out. So, the, and you can see this consistently throughout the Reformed tradition that the resurrection in a corporeal nature of the bodies of believers, um, especially the bodies of believers, will be uh, raised physically. All people's bodies will be raised physically, but um, it, as it relates to Christians, uh, that's kind of what's being focused on here. Um, but there are multiple verses that are cited from 1 Corinthians 15 for this specific paragraph. You know, for those of you who are not familiar with, um, like the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Second London, um, there are proof texts that are underneath, you know, some of these paragraphs or all of the paragraphs in the confession that give biblical references that support the truth found in that particular paragraph. So 1 Corinthians 15 is cited multiple times for this particular paragraph. But even going back before the Reformed tradition, you can see this concept of a, a bodily resurrection within uh, the early church. If you look at the Nicene Creed, there's discussion around the resurrection. And even in the Apostles' Creed, we see early confession to this doctrine. And the fact that these doc these creeds have this doctrine within uh, the creedal statement summarizing the faith shows how important it was to understanding what the Christian faith 
was. It wasn't something tertiary. It wasn't something secondary. This was something that was considered core to the faith, so much so that it was codified in a summation of Christian faith in a creed that Christians could learn and understand. But jumping back to um, more of the reform period, this would be the 17th century, looking at Francis Turretin in his uh, institutes, he has a section on last things. And I want to read a little bit here. Uh, he says, quote, the necessity of the question is great to confirm this primary article of our faith against libertines and Epicureans who in every age within as well as out of the church have either denied or called in question the resurrection of the dead. So even in this time, um, the church was still struggling with people who were uh, denying the resurrection of the dead or you know, denying the resurrection in general or something about the resurrection was being called into question and being contested. It wasn't just something that was in the early church. It wasn't just something that we struggle with now. This is something that the church, even in the high reformation period was struggling with and had to be explicitly denied. Uh, Turretin goes, you know, he calls us a primary article of faith of our faith. So this is not something that's secondary or tertiary, even in Turretin's mind, but something that is considered of utmost importance. It's uh, considered core to the faith. And then he goes on to say, uh, talking about Socinians and the resurrection, he says, quote, are the bodies numerically which have died to be raised again? We affirm against the Socinians. Um, the question is moved by the Socinians who maintain that the bodies of the raised will be without flesh and blood and that the identical flesh, which we now have with regard to its essence, will not rise again. Quote, this present body must die that another new one may spring from it, says Sicinius. Um, Smalkis, these bodies which we now bear about with us, we believe will not rise again, but we are taught by the apostle that others will be given to us. And then he, Turretin goes on to say, hence he wishes the words of the creed to be thus understood. I believe that will exist again, which was flesh before. So he, one thing that's nice about Turretin is Turretin, when he's talking about his opponents, he likes to go to the sources themselves. He doesn't just say, well, this is what they believe. He'll quote primary source material to back up what he says and cite them and say, here's where you can find what they say in their works. You can see even in his time, there were those who were denying this fleshly resurrection. The Sassinians were denying uh, this fleshly resurrection that they would somehow get a, and saying that they would somehow get another body um, that wasn't the one that they have now. Um, so, you know, this is considered very problematic. And the Socinians had other issues as well. They uh, denied the Trinity um, and had serious issues with the doctrine of God and were considered outside of uh, the Christian faith. Um, but to understand the bodily resurrection in, in the way the Socinians did was really to put yourself outside of the faith. I mean, you're, you're falling into the heretics camp. Um, and so, and obviously outside of scripture. So, this certainly would raise um, some significant uh, problems. But that's just a, a very basic, very high-level historical overview of where we see this kind of in the, in the Reformation period, in the early church period. But we do see historically among the Orthodox a consistent confession of a fleshly corporeal resurrection um, at the last day. All right. Well, you want to move into some of the biblical evidence now there, Dan? Yep. That sounds All good. Right. Cool, cool. 
All right. So um, first, we'll just go through uh, some biblical evidence for the bodily resurrection, and then we'll we'll begin to tie it to the gospel, right? Because it's not enough to say the scriptures teach uh, a, a physical resurrection, but we're also making the additional claim that this has become a gospel issue. Mm -hmm. um, so just to start off with, uh, I'd actually like to start with the Old Testament reference here, and that's uh, Job 19 verses 25 through 27. And this is Job speaking. It's not his friends. It's Job. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. So Job makes this statement Um basically saying, hey, my, my body is being destroyed, it's being consumed, but I know on the last day that in my flesh, I will see God. My eyes will behold him. It won't be, a, it won't be another. Um, so this is, a, uh, this is so basic that even Old Testament saints recognized it. And mm -hmm. it's especially interesting if you consider, um, there, there's a couple different uh, dates that are given for when Job actually takes place. Um, I definitely lean towards the early view that this would be the patriarch or more likely pre-patriarch period. Um, and it's, if that's the case, then it's very interesting that even at that point, there's such a clear doctrine of the resurrection that Job can quote it and his friends don't ever come back and, and say, well, what, what, what are you talking about there, Job? That doesn't, that's not right. You know, that's just assumed because Job's, Job's friends have other criticisms of Job, but that's not one of them. This is just so basic that Job can say it and there's no, um, it's not like he even feels the need to defend himself. Like this is just, this is just the truth. Right. So it's a very, very, uh, basic truth. Was that during the discussion with one of his friends that he said that? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't remember which one it was, but, um, yeah, it was during the discussion. Got it. Then, uh, moving on to the new Testament real quick, got, uh, Romans eight eleven. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. So uh, here it's saying uh, it's making a connection to Christ's resurrection. He raised Christ uh, from the dead. The spirit raised Christ from the dead and the spirit will quicken, make alive your mortal bodies, the mortal bodies that we have now. So even though we're dead, those bodies will be made alive again. They will be changed. We know that so that uh, they are not going to be exactly the same as uh, we are now, but uh, it's this self same body. It's that same body. Uh, so it's a, it's a physical resurrection there. Did you have any other proof text before we jump into first Corinthians 15 there, Dan? Um, the only thing I, and I should have looked, I should have been more careful to look this up, but I think first, first Thessalonians, I believe is another place. First or second Thessalonians that talks about the resurrection, um, of the dead in some way, shape or form. I have a uh, first Thessalonians four here, but I think that'll come into the conversation a little bit later. Okay. So yeah. That's we, probably we might get thinking of, but other than that. that, no, I don't, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. All right. Um, well, we can uh we'll probably spend the bulk of our time here in first Corinthians four uh, fifteen because it's uh it's so important to this discussion. Um I'll just start by reading verses one through four here. 
Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So uh, the reason I, I, I bring up this first section here is because Paul is establishing what the gospel is, right? Mm-hmm. He's saying, this is, this is the gospel I, I preach to you, the one that you're going to be saved by if you, if you hold to it, if you believe it. And then he immediately goes into Christ's resurrection. Um, he says that Christ died and that he was raised on the third day. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, this is how he's, he's starting his discussion of the gospel. And I think that you had wanted to read a little bit later there, Dan. Did you want to pick up at verse 12? Yeah. Yeah. So it's good that Sean brought up those verses initially because what Paul is going to say later on, actually, I think throughout the rest of the chapter, is always tied back to that gospel message, right? So the gospel message is set up, Christ's resurrection is discussed, and then Paul is going to tie our resurrection directly to Christ's resurrection. Um, as it relates to covenantal language. And we'll pick up uh, starting there in verse 12. So verses 12 through 18. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So you can see here, Paul is tying the two together. You can't have one without the other. You can't have Christ's resurrection without our resurrection taking place. And you can't have our resurrection taking place without Christ's resurrection. They're so, they're they're inseparable. You cannot divorce them. As soon as you divorce them, you've undermined the gospel. Because if you if you deny that there is a uh, any resurrection at all or a bodily resurrection, as Paul will bring out later, then you're denying Christ's resurrection. Your faith is futile. There is no resurrection of Christ. We are most to be pitied. We are idiots. We're, we look stupid because we're walking around saying this guy rose from the dead. When he didn't, we're lying. That's what we're doing. And so Paul is making this of utmost importance in a gospel issue that if you deny the resurrection, including a physical resurrection, you are denying Christ's resurrection. You cannot have one without the other. So that's very important to keep in mind here. Another thing, Paul is using, and he will use covenantal language as it relates to the resurrection as we go through this chapter. Paul is going to talk about being in Christ, being in Adam, this, you know, being joined to the federal head of that particular covenant, which, excuse me, which in your natural state will be with Adam. And therefore, as Romans 5 said, death came to all men because all sinned because of what Adam did, right? That's because we're united to Adam covenantally. He is our federal head. But if we're in Christ, we receive the benefits of the federal head of the new covenant. And in this case, it would mean his resurrection is our resurrection. His righteousness is our righteousness. His sanctification is our sanctification, etc. Like 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, 
um, in him, he became for us righteousness, redemption, sanctification, etc. So being in Christ means that we receive all of these spiritual blessings that are in him. All of them, in fact, Ephesians 1 says, every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ Jesus. And clearly that includes uh, the resurrection that he had because Paul ties our resurrection to Christ. And because Christ's resurrection was corporeal, Christ rose physically, Christ was in a spirit. And we know in, in the book of Luke that when Jesus appeared to the apostles, to the disciples behind closed doors, they thought he was a ghost. And he said, no, ghosts don't have flesh and blood. Uh, touch me. You can feel me. Uh, I have flesh. Put your fingers in the, in the nail holes. Touch my side. I am the Jesus that died. I am physically here. He was glorified in a sense. He was not exactly the same body uh, in the sense, but he had a physical body. It was the same physical body that he died with, just glorified and changed. So that's really what Paul is uh, is bringing out here um, if I could, in these uh, passages. If I could jump in there, yeah, you yeah. also have the uh, the significance of the empty tomb, right? Why, why mm -hmm. is the tomb empty? Exactly. Why is if this is a non-corporeal um resurrection what what happened to the body you know why do the gospel writers take time to emphasize that the the tomb is empty you know um yeah because it's, it's, it's pointing to that and it's it's uh it's important you know that's why the the gospels spend this time making sure that uh the readers understand this is a physical resurrection it is christ's same body glorified yes but it is his same body yeah and it's funny, you only have really two options. Um, you either have Christ's body was stolen or he rose from the dead. And it's amazing when you when you listen, when you read the accounts, and maybe it's just us looking back, right? And we know better because we have the fuller picture. But Jesus told them time and time again that he would rise, right? It wasn't it wasn't a secret, it wasn't a surprise, it was something that he kept telling them. Yet when it happened, they couldn't believe it, and they were completely caught off guard by it. Um so it, it, you have the one or two options. It's Christ was stolen, which some of them thought he was. Um, you know, they were like, where, where have you taken my Lord's body? Where is he? They, they thought that he was taken. They just they didn't believe in what Jesus had said about uh, him rising from the dead until they saw him actually rising from the dead. Um, so, yeah, Jesus not being in the tomb is strong evidence for that resurrection, physically speaking, because um, you would expect if he was a phantom, that he his body would still be there and there would be his soul or his spirit floating around doing whatever it does. Um, but no, it was his real physical body, just flesh and blood, just glorified. Um, jumping forward to verses 20 and 23. Uh, now, uh, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who had fall, who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so, in Christ, all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. So here's the covenantal language that Paul is using. You're in Adam, you die, physically, spiritually, but if you're in Christ, you're made alive. And he's talking about physical resurrection here because that's the context. But if you're in Adam, you're going to physically die, but if you're in Christ, you will be made alive. Um, so Christ's resurrection, his corporeal resurrection in a glorified body becomes your resurrection corporally in a glorified body. Um, so by virtue of being in the new covenant. 
Um, but this understanding here of this passage um, is going to come into play as we go into further verses about spiritual versus physical bodies and some of that difficult language that Paul uses here. Um, but we'll deal with this passage first. So Paul uses this language of first fruits. Um, this is very important in understanding um, you know, what Paul is talking about here. Is he talking about spiritual or physical? Are we spirits? Are we raised as in a spiritual sense or are we raised uh, physically? So when we're talking about first fruits, this is talking about um, you know, really using the language of harvest. This is an Old Testament reference. You can find this in um, Deuteronomy 26, verse 2, um, but it's talking about the best of the harvest that was um, laid out um, when it was time to bring those first fruits um, in sacrifice. John Gill uh, talks about this a little bit, and I'll, I'm going to read a little bit here, but he goes into some of the history of what first fruits actually means. He says, quote, the first fruits sanctified the rest of the harvest, represented the whole, gave right to the ingathering of it, ensured it. Christ, by lying in the grave and rising out of it, sanctified it for his people, and in this resurrection represented them. They rose, in, they rose with him and in him, and the resurrection is secured by his. Because he lives, they shall live also. The first fruits were only such, and all this to the, first fruit, to the fruits of the earth, that were of the same kind with them, not to tares and chaff, to briars and thorns. So Christ, in rising from the dead, is only the first fruits of the saints. Of such are the fruits of his death and of his grace. So, in other words, Christ represented by being the first fruits of the dead. He represented the bot, you know, believers in his resurrection. So he was kind of the the first of the pickings, sanctifying the rest of the harvest, so to speak, of the believers that would rise from the dead. He was the best of the batch, so to speak, representing the whole. Now, what's interesting about that is because Christ represents the rest of the harvest, the best of the harvest is still of the same kind as the rest of the harvest. So Jesus rising physically with the physical body represents the rest of that so-called harvest, meaning that the rest of the harvest that was to come would also be physical. It wasn't like Jesus was rising corporally and then the rest of the harvest is going to rise um, non-corporally. That wouldn't make any sense because the first fruits comes from that same harvest. It's just the best of the harvest. It's sanctifying the rest of the harvest that's to come. You don't have horses representing uh, wheat in the first fruits uh, harvest, right? That would be a category error. They have to be of the same kind. And, and, uh, John Gill kind of alludes to that to some extent in as much as he's talking about there's no tares, there's no chaff. It's all believers that are represented there. But I think you can apply that further and say, you know, this is talking also about the same kind as it relates to the type of resurrection. Jesus was raised with a physical body uh, representing the rest of the harvest to come. And the rest of the harvest has to be corporeal just like he was. Otherwise, he can't really be representing that harvest. Um, so the first fruits conversation, I think, is very key to understanding uh, this passage and the physical resurrection, because it shows the covenantal nature of uh, the resurrection, but it also shows what type of resurrection is to come based on Christ's representative nature of believers. So um, it really helps us to understand what is going on here. Um, do you have anything to add to that, Sean? Not for that, no. Okay. 
Uh, moving, jumping down to verses 42 through 45. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There a natural body. Oh, there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving uh, spirit. And this is 1 Corinthians 15, 42-45. So Paul has just finished describing, he talks about these uh, celestial beings, um, like talking about planets, terrestrial, uh, celestial, things like that, and then paralleling that with the resurrection of the dead, and talks about this contrast between spiritual and physical bodies, right? So the body is sown in corruption, right? We, we decay, we die, we're imperfect, physically speaking, um, but we're raised in incorruption. So does this, when Paul is using this language of spiritual body versus natural body, is he talking about a real contrast between physical and then, you know, we're going to have some kind of spiritual body that isn't corporeal in any way. And we're going to say no. Um, and there's some things to keep in mind. Paul says that the body that we have is sown in corruption, yet that same body is raised in incorruption. He doesn't say it's a different body. He doesn't say it's not a body at all, and it's just merely a spirit. He clearly says it's the same body, but that body is raised in a different way than the natural body would have existed. So we still have the same body, flesh and blood. It's just been glorified. Um, spirits don't have bodies. So if we're raised in a, as a spirit uh, that isn't physical, then you know it, it's pro Paul cannot properly be saying that it is a body. Right, because spirits don't have bodies. This is basic Christian metaphysics. This is basic Christianity that God is a spirit. Why does he not have a body like men, as the children's catechism says? Because he is a spirit. Spirits don't have bodies. And Jesus, we already mentioned this earlier, when Jesus appeared to his disciples behind the locked door, he said, you know, they were, they feared that he was a ghost. And then he said that ghosts don't have flesh and blood or spirits don't have flesh and blood. I do have flesh and blood. Um, and so Jesus already lays out those categories for us. This is very basic. So if we're saying that this is you're just raised as a spirit without a physical body, then Paul is lying when he says that we have a body because spirits don't have bodies. That's just not a biblical category um, or biblical um, metaphysic. And then verse 45 is, you know, it talks about the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life giving spirit. And I mentioned somebody from Twitter here because I saw this the um, might have been last week. Twitter account called Cage Stage Calvinist. This guy um, or gal, I don't, I don't know what it is. They're one of those uh, anonymous accounts, but they said that Jesus no longer has a physical body um, after rising. I don't know if it was when he ascended or is it immediately after his resurrection. But at the very least, now he does not have a physical body. The hypostatic union is over, kind of thing. And he used, or this person used this verse as proof for that um the first man adam became a living being and the last adam became a life-giving spirit um which is a very interesting take on that on the hypostatic union but and in a heretical one for that um but it's interesting john gill talks about this and it's really um i think a, a translational might be a translational issue because gill does talk about different translations that might read um Let's see, what does he say here? Um, 
Gill says the last Adam's body upon his resurrection is a spiritual and life-giving one, as the Syriac version renders it, so that Kabbalistic writers speak of Adam, who is the holy and supreme, who rules over all and gives spirit and life to all. So this isn't saying that Jesus became a spirit afterwards, and he's no longer in a hypostatic union or as a physical body, but this is talking about Jesus being the one who gives life to all. And But this is not denying his physical resurrection. This is not denying that the hypostatic union uh, still exists. Um, but it, the, all these things are important as we understand the resurrection. Jesus still has a body. He was raised in a glorified body. And we will be like him in the sense that we will have glorified bodies too on that last day. Um, and we will be as Christ is, physically speaking, with a glorified body um, and be able to identify with him in that way because of the covenantal nature um, that's given to us. So we have to be really, really careful um, when we talk about these things. Otherwise, we can we start to veer off into these ditches that we don't need to be, uh, you know, wandering into. We have to be very, very careful. Um, but you can see how important and critical this doctrine is to our faith. You compromise in one place, the entire dominoes fall. Yes, you can be inconsistent, but um, some with a doctrine like this, if you start chipping away at certain things, you're still going to be in a heretical, um, in a heretical area because it's all of this is quarter understanding of the faith at a critical level. Um, you have anything you want to add, Sean? Yeah, I want to talk a little bit uh, about uh, the the resurrection being future, right? Because it, it seems mm, yes. very often that yep. you have the uh, the denial of a bodily resurrection, a physical resurrection, go hand in hand with the denial that the resurrection is future. It seems, mm -hmm. at, le at least from what I've seen, that uh, it's an explanation for how the resurrection can't be future. Uh, or it's a it's an explanation given when somebody says, "Well, how can how can um, the resurrection or how can people being be raised now, not not in the future?" Uh, because we don't see the people around. It's like, oh, it's a spiritual resurrection. It's not a physical resurrection. So that it does seem that those go hand in hand. Um, going uh, just a couple proof texts to discuss this. Verse uh, uh, 23, going back to verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 15. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after they uh, that are Christ at his coming, then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed uh, is death. So uh, as, as Dan was reading earlier in this section, it's, it's about the resurrection for, for since by man came death by man came also the resurrection of the dead. And uh, this is clearly putting it at the end of the world where death is defeated. Um, it would yeah. seem, it would seem very strange that the resurrection would be going on now in its fullness, and yet death is still all around us. If death is defeated, that would seem a very odd way of reading that. Um, you also have the resurrection being talked as the resurrection, right? So this is Second Timothy two seventeen through eighteen. Uh, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth has erred, have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and mm. overthrow the faith of some. 
you'll note it's the resurrection and has passed already. If there's this ongoing spiritual resurrection as people die, it doesn't really make sense to say the resurrection has passed already. Um, that, that, that would be like, that would be something that was incorrect to say, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't phrase it like that. Paul wouldn't have phrased it like that. We also have, um, uh, first Thessalonians four, and this is verses 13 through 18, but I would not have you ignorant, be ignorant brethren concerning they which are asleep yet ye sorrow, not even as others, which have no hope. For we, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Mm. So for Paul, the, the, the resurrection hasn't, hasn't happened yet to him. Um, he, is, he is saying whenever Christ descends, the, uh, those that uh, have, uh, have been raised will be brought with him. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he goes on to describe that as uh, they'll be caught up in the air with him, which obviously hasn't happened yet. Um, there might be some that want to dispute that from the, the uh, they would take a, a non-literal view of that. But I think that's not the way to, to, to take that. Um, so, the, I mean, this definitely seems, again, uh, as one of a, a series of proof texts, seems to be placing the resurrection at, the uh, the final judgment, the second coming. Now, would you agree that a full preterist position, uh, logically taken to its conclusion, would lead to a denial of a future resurrection? I, I yeah, full preterist because for full preterist there is no more prophecy to be fulfilled. So right, yeah, no, all of this would have had to have ta taken place probably in, in seventy A.D. Um, is when they would put most of it. Maybe some at Christ's ascension, but yeah, no. Full preterists, by definition, deny that there's future uh, any future prophecy to be fulfilled. So, and that's one of the main problems with that position uh, is you get into murky waters as it relates to uh, the bodily resurrection um, and when it happens. Right, like you're talking about, Sean. There, some would say that the, the resurrection already happened, um, it, implying that there's a future resurrection yet to be. Um, so. It, not just any resurrection, but the resurrection. So it, it it can definitely create problems there, I think. And and yet another reason why in, in a position like that gets into murky waters on these primary articles of faith and why it's so dangerous, um, because it can it can lead to denying core aspects of the faith if logically taken to its conclusion. Well, that's all I had. All right. All right. Well, I think that's all we have today. Um, not a super long episode, but hopefully very, very helpful. Um, you know that again, these are these are critical aspects of our faith as it relates to the resurrection, um, and something that we must grasp. You know, if if anyone who listens to this episode is maybe struggling with this issue, um, do know that this is a this is a gospel issue. This is something that if you claim to be a Christian. And if you if you deny the bodily resurrection of of the dead and also of Christ, but 
even denying the resurrection of the dead, this uh, puts you outside of the Christian faith. This is a primary article of our faith, as Turretin said. So it must be believed. It must be be embraced, um, along with you know Christ being risen from the dead, along with his um, his uh, death and his burial. All those things are tied together um, in or as part of that one gospel that we have. So we have to be very, very careful about the language we're using, the terminology we're using, some of these different systems that come out onto the play, like um, a full preterist position, uh, which does deny any kind of future prophecy that 70 AD was kind of the fulfillment of all of those biblical prophecies, um, and that we don't really have anything to look forward to, um, you know, if taken to its logical conclusion. So we have to be very, very careful. So, you know, we want there to be clarity here. We want there to be um, you want there to be a, you know, a, a unity of how we see biblical revelation covenantally um, as it relates to the gospel and through God's word that he has revealed. But we hope that this has been helpful um, and, you know, we appreciate any feedback or any further questions if anyone has any. Um, but thanks for joining us today. Uh, we hope this has been a helpful episode and Lord willing, we will be back next week. Take care. God bless.